You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, chapter 2. As we continue our studies in the book of assurance, we're going to look at verses 28 to chapter 3, verse 3. But I will read to chapter 3, verse 9 to set the context. Children of God. We'll begin reading at verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Amen. Well, let us pray. Well, Lord, our God, we are thankful again that you speak to your children. Thank you that you give new hearts. Thank you that you open eyes and thank you that you do uh, work a mighty work. We know that one who is born of God is not born of the will of man, nor of blood, nor of the flesh, but of your will. And so we're thankful for those who have believed on Christ, who have professed faith in him. Thank you for that assurance that we have that we are children of God. And thank you that we can see uh, assurances. We can see uh, manifestations. We can see evidences in our own life that we are the children of God. But for those that do not know you, help them to see their sin. And we pray that they they would uh, manifest to be children of God in your timing. For if they are not, we know that they are children of the devil. And thank you that you're the one who saves. You're the one who works. You're the one who has a great multitude that no man can number. And we pray that you would bring in that multitude even this day. And we pray for those that are yours, that you would give us assurance, that you give us encouragement. Help us to know your love for us. Help us to know the hope that we have in Christ as we await to see him as he is. For we are suffering, for we go through much pain and toil and suffering, uh, even our sins that remain in this world. And so we long to see our Savior. We long for that blessedness forever as we gaze upon the high King of glory. And so we ask and pray as we look to you now by faith that you would encourage us and uplift us. And thank you for the hope that we have that we shall see Christ as he is. So sanctify our hearts this day. Make us more like our Savior. Help us to walk in righteousness. Help us to know that we are pure just as he is pure. And thank you for the assurances you provide for your people. And we pray if there are any here today who do not know you, please work in them. And we ask and pray that you would send forth your spirit to give us illumination. Help us to see, help us to understand by faith. Help us to know what your word says. And we need your spirit to help us in this as we study these blessed divine matters. Be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Well, when babies are born, people ask or just make a judgment about who that little one resembles, about which parent that one might look like. And parents themselves, as their children grow up, they begin to see and wonder uh, how they're going to act or wonder first how they're going to act. But then they eventually see uh, some traits uh, in those children and their looks and character can reveal whose child they are. Well, just as it is true for biological children, the same thing is true for uh, spiritual children. The same thing is true for those who are called the children of God. If we have been born of God, if we've been called children of God, then what character traits should we as the children of God then exhibit? How should we live? How, what should we do if we are called the children of God? Now, John is writing to encourage his hearers, but there is also a warning for the heretics uh, that were threatening the church at Ephesus to whom John is writing. So there's some warning involved here, but it is mainly meant to be an assurance and encouragement for the people of God. Those who are the children of God, those who remain in the truth, those who have the Lord Jesus Christ, they can have assurance. And remember, this book is all about assurance. The main point of the book is 1 John 5, 13. I write to you, little children, that you might know, you might have assurance that you have eternal life. And it's founded upon the gospel. It's structured in and around the gospel. It's structured much like a sermon. And now we really transition to the second overall point of the entire book. The first point was, how do we know where uh, where Christ, how do we have assurance? Well, we walk in the light. Another way we know that we have assurance is if we live like the children of God, if we walk like his children. And even though it's a transition to a new section, there's still a lot of connection with what we saw the past several weeks, namely the importance of the truth, the abiding of the truth, the gospel of Christ, the Trinity, and all the blessedness of what that means versus the Antichrist. Versus men who said uh, that they know Christ, they say they come from the church, but in reality they deny the Father and the Son. Who is an antichrist but he who denies the Father and the Son? And so what is the truth then that encourages us, uplifts us? What do we need to know? What assurance can we have then as the children of God? Now the problem of these verses can be gleaned by a question. What does a child of God look like? And certainly this will continue on in verses 4 through 9. But what shall a child of God exhibit? How shall they look? If one claims to be a child of God, should they not want, although not perfectly, to be with God? Should they not want to dwell with him? Should they not want to be in his word? And shall they not want to uh, walk in his ways? We ought to honor God who is our father, according to the ways that he has said in his word. It's a key test. It's a key evidence. It's a key assurance. Have we believed on Jesus? Do we walk in righteousness? Do we long to see Jesus or do we love our sin? Those questions we all need to ask ourselves as we go through these verses. Again, it's meant to be an encouragement for the people of God, but still some self-examination is needed. And so in 1 John 2, verses 28 through 3, 3, John describes how a child of God lives and looks. What a child of God uh, should do, how it, what a child of God uh, ought to love as one who has been born of God. And so which characteristics should one born of God exhibit? We'll frame this morning's sermon under two headings. 
First of all, we'll see children who are righteous, verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2. Then we'll see, secondly, children who are pure, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Children who are righteous is the first point, verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2. And children who are pure in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3. So let's first look at children who are righteous in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And again, the context is abiding in the truth, abiding in what one says about the Lord Jesus Christ and one who abides in the power of the Holy Spirit, which has been given to the people of God. And there's this warning against these antichrists, these false teachers, and the antidote against these false teachers is to know the truth and to know the one true God. How we know the one true God is by his word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the result is then that we abide in him. We remain in him. We remain in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need Christ. We need his gospel throughout our entire lives, dear brethren. We need the Savior. We need our Lord to help us and strengthen us as we long for his second coming. Just as he has come one time, so then shall he come again. And so John then says in verse 28, and now little children, he said this throughout the book. It highlights his affection, highlights his love for them, his concern for them, but also shows his position as a spiritual father to them, as one who guides them, as one who directs them, as one who uh, wants what's best for his children, hopefully like any earthly father would. And hopefully that your children love to be, earthly children love to be with their earthly fathers. They respect them, they love them, they fear them, but they also want to be with them because they uh, have, uh, have, uh, earthly fathers hopefully have the best interests of their children in their mind. And so John has his best interests for these little children. And now little children, he says, abide in him. He tells them about the confidence that they have as little children who can come to their father any time because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says again, abide in him. Don't follow what these antichrists have to say. Abide in him. Remain in him. It is a command. It's that sphere. It's that key word that comes up a lot in the book of first John, but also in the gospel of John as well. We need to remain in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you deviate from what he says, if you deviate from who he is, then you will prove uh, in the end that you will you were never actually born of him. God's children will persevere until the end. The last hour is filled with those who seek to deceive. The last hour is filled with the world and all its alluring things, all its accoutrements, all the glamour that it brings. The world is filled with the devil still who seeks to destroy. Christ has won the battle. Christ reigns supreme. The last hour really is just cleanup time. The past 2,000 years have been just the cleanup time. And if the Lord tarries for another 8,000 years, it's still the last hour, and it is still this cleanup time. Christ reigns supreme. Christ will come again. But as we await his coming, this world is filled with devils. This world is filled with uh, uh, things that draw our sins in or uh, draw out our remaining corruption. And so we must be watchful. And the ways that we're watchful, the ways that we remain until the end is by abiding in him, by abiding in Jesus Christ, even until the end. And notice he brings in the end of the world. Now, little children, abide in him that 
when he appears. Now, when I talk about the end of the world, when I talk about Christ's second coming, what I mean is when Christ comes again forever. When Christ comes again and there's the resurrection, there's then the judgment and then the eternal state begins. That all happens simultaneously, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I am unashamedly, is that the right way to say it? A millennial in my views of the end times. If you want to be pre-mill, that's fine. If you want to be post-mill, that's fine too. But I am for sure an amillennial. And what this teaches us, I know we all get freaked out when I start talking eschatology, right? Why do you have to say millennium all the time? The reason we have to talk about eschatology all the time, dear brethren, is because it comes up a lot in the Bible. Everything we're speaking about today is eschatological, how we live in light of Christ's coming. And the eschatology, it means the last times, right? But it really just means the bringing in of the kingdom. I mean, the Old Testament had an eschatology. You know what they were looking towards and looking for? Christ. They were looking for the Savior. They were looking for the Messiah and his coming. And when he came, he is inaugurated and started the last days. We just long for the last days to finish, don't we? We long for this time of perilousness and perilous men to be ended. We long for Christ and his coming. You see how eschatology matters and how eschatology isn't just cosmic, which is when's the world going to end? What millennial view do you have? But it is personal, isn't it? And when I say personal, we long for a resurrected body, don't we? We long for our glorious body. We long to know what we are now in Christ. We want to know what we have by the spirit, which is eschatological and how we ought then to live in light of his eschatology. What should we do as we await his coming? Abide in him. Remain in him that when he appears. And notice we've already seen the appearing language already in chapter 1, verse 1. He, the, John had seen him. John beheld him. John heard him. He heard the word of life. And just as he has come once, he, sh- he shall come again. But when he comes again, it's going to be different. It's going to be louder everyone's going to see. And I love what Henry says as he compares the first and second coming of our Lord. He says, when he was here before, he came privately in comparison. He proceeded from a womb and was introduced in a stable. But when he shall come again, he will come from the opened heavens and every eye shall see him. And then those who have continued with him throughout all their temptations shall have confidence, assurance, and joy in the sight of him. They shall lift up their heads with unspeakable triumph as knowing that their complete redemption comes along with him. We long for his coming. We long for its fullness. And as we await his appearing the second time, we shall abide in him. That when he appears, notice the demeanor, the disposition we have, that we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming that we might have confidence and not be ashamed. He's talking about the last judgment, dear brethren. He's talking about the boldness that we can have before the judgment seat of God. And he says something similar in uh, chapter 4, verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness, confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. 
Some people worry, even among Christians, about that judgment day. I know we're going to have to give an account, dear brethren. But some people ask, is God going to play a movie of all the terrible things that I have done? Is God going to look at all the wicked thoughts that nobody else saw? Is God going to see me get provoked by that biker who takes up and hogs the whole road? Brother, I can't stand bikers. Are you a pedestrian or are you a car? Decide which one you want to be. That's just an aside. Uh, That's probably a petty little thing. But God will see all those things, right? You see, the beautiful thing, dear brethren, is we don't have to worry about that. You want to know why? Because we are covered in Christ's righteousness. We are washed in his blood. And so when we go to that judgment day, we go with confidence because our sins have been forgiven. Our sins have been cleansed and washed in the blood of Christ. So you don't have to have shame on that day, dear brethren. You get to have confidence in and because of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what he is saying here. And just as we have confidence before the throne of grace in prayer, right? Shouldn't we have confidence before the throne of grace in prayer? The same word for confidence that we see in verse 28 is also used in Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 10, how we get to boldly approach the throne of grace through our great and awesome high priest in chapter um, in chapter uh, 320, uh, 321 of 1 John. He says something similar when it comes to prayer. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments. A child who knows that their father loves them has confidence to come to their father. Do they not? Brethren, do we, should we not have that confidence in prayer even now to come before our God and ask according to his will and ask according to his covenant and ask according to his ways? You see, we have a confidence now and on that day we shall have a confidence as well. As we boldly approach, as we come before that judgment, we do not need to fear, but we can have great confidence because of what Christ has done. We have boldness And notice, we're not ashamed before him at his coming. Those who are not in Christ shall be put to shame. Those who've not been covered in his blood when he comes again, he will put you to shame. We're going to talk about shame tonight in the book of Hosea and the judgment God brings upon the northern kingdom, Israel, and the shame that they shall have as they are brought into and sold into captivity for their sins. Sin brings shame. Sin brings death. Sin brings guilty verdict before God most high. Not if you're not in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins shall find you out. God shall know and you shall be punished forever. That's why if you're not in Christ, you need to flee to Christ. You need to believe upon Christ. You need to look to him because he is going to come again and you will see him and you will not have the confidence that his children have, but you shall try to hide and you cannot hide from him and he shall put you to shame. Believe upon him and you shall be saved and you shall be called a child of God. And these false teachers, the implication is they shall have shame before the judgment seat of God. They shall have shame before the throne of judgment for their wickedness. And notice how delusional they are. I mean, they thought that they had communion with God. They thought that they've seen God. They thought that they knew God, but they denied 
the Father and the Son. If you deny the Father and the Son, you do not have Christ, and you shall be ashamed in that day. But for the people of God, it's meant to be encouraging. We may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And so we can be confident, but we can also see in verse 29 that the children of God are righteous as he is righteous. Notice how we're not supposed to know the day or the hour of when Christ's coming back. We're supposed to be watchful. And as we're watchful, it means we're supposed to press on in the faith, right? You see, if we knew the day or the hour, we might get lax sometimes in our Christian walk, right? That's what our confession says at the end of chapter, at the last, actually the last paragraph, chapter 32 of the last judgment, paragraph three, as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded, there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. So will he have the day unknown to men. They may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may ever be prepared to say, come, Lord Jesus, quickly. Amen. And so John is doing something similar here. If you are in Christ, if you believed him, if you've been born of him, you will want to practice righteousness. If you know he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Christ is the righteous one. First John 2, 2. We have our advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Uh, he is the one who is perfect in every way. He was the one who followed and did what God said. Nobody else could. So we call Christ's active obedience. He was righteous in every way because you and I are not. Every other religion aside from Christianity teaches you must be righteous in your own way. Here's how you do it. But before God Almighty, our righteousness is like filthy rags. We need another righteousness. We need Christ's righteousness. We need someone to transfer his righteousness to us, which is what Christ does in the gospel. If you believe our sin was imputed to him and his righteousness is imputed or transferred to us, that we might be justified in his sight through faith. And so if we believed upon him, we are righteous in his sight. If we believed upon him, we have that blessed promise of justification where God has declared us righteous in his sight. Even now, before we come to the throne of judgment, the verdict is already rendered. You are not guilty because of the Lord's finished work as that perfect sacrifice for his people. But if we are his children, if we have been born of him, of Christ, or born of God in the likeness of Christ, then we ought to practice righteousness. That's another test, isn't it? If Christ is righteous, if we have been born in the likeness of him, if we've been born of God, should we not delight to do what is pleasing in our father's sight? We're not going to do it perfectly, dear brethren. But if there's some semblance, if there's some seed, if there's some evidence, there's meant to be an assurance for the people of God. If Christ, our elder brother, did this and we've been given that righteousness and we have the spirit within us, should we then not practice righteousness? It's an important question, dear brother. There's a lot of good assurances that we have here, but an important question to ask is, do we, do you practice righteousness? He's going to go on and explain the opposite of righteousness, which is sin. And we see that sin is lawlessness. First John is filled with a lot of great 
quotes, a lot of great passages, a lot of great theology. I mean, he tells us in verse four, what sin is lawlessness, violating the 10 commandments, going against God's law. That is lawlessness. What then is righteousness, dear brethren, doing what God said, according to his commandments, We've already seen him mention the commandments in chapter two. He's going to mention them again as well, not as a way of salvation, not as a means by which we are saved, but as an evidence. If we have been changed, if we have been born of God, should we not then exhibit the fruit of the spirit? Should we not then at least to some degree want to do what is pleasing in the sight of the Lord God most high? Again, our confession talking about justification. Justification is the act of God's free grace, where we don't infuse it, we don't uh, confuse it with sanctification, we don't confuse it with good works. We Christ is what Christ, uh, it's what the Spirit does within us because of Christ's completed work. But those who are justified will be sanctified. And sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Good works don't contribute to our standing before God, but it's an evidence that we have a standing with God. Chapter 11, paragraph 2. Faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the lone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. And so you're like, Pastor Mike, I really struggle with sins. I really am concerned for my salvation. I'm struggling with my assurance. That is a very good thing. Someone who is not saved is not concerned really about their salvation at all. Brother, we're not looking for sinless perfection. First John 3, 9, a lot of people, that's a tough passage and I'll tell you what it means when we get there next week. But whoever has been born of God does not sin for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin. Does that mean that God's people can have sinless perfection? I guess, you know, the answer. No, God's people still struggle with sin on this side of heaven. But is there some evidence? Is there some growth? Is there uh, 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 even if you struggle and your heart feels dead, is there still this desire to come before God and go before the throne of grace? Are those things there? Is there evidence in some sort of pet sin. Maybe you haven't fully shaken it, but you're growing in that area. Are there those evidences that you can have? Think of the Ten Commandments. Am I, I don't love the Lord perfectly, but am I loving him a little bit more? I get provoked by bikers. Am I being provoked a little bit less by bikers on the road? I mean, those are all things, you know, that's good evidences and signs to your brother. Is there that's, those things can give us assurance that we are Christ, that we are his. And if we struggle if we go through periods or seasons of sin, repent, come back, look to Christ, for he is our great and wonderful advocate. I mean, that's what First John 2, 1 and 2 says. My little children, I write these things that you may not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So works are an important test and assurance, not perfection, but... If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. A child of God, a child who has been born of God is a child who is righteous. And so that is children who are righteous. Let's then go on to children who are pure in verses one through three of chapter three. Children who are pure, verses one through three of chapter 
3. And notice he then interjects in verse 1. And we see children who are loved by him, loved by God. The foundation for being a child of God has nothing to do with you. (laughs) Has nothing to do with your goodness. It has everything to do with God and his infinite love. 1 John, as I said, is filled with a lot of theology. I mean, this passage today, as I was preparing, I'm like, there's a lot of theology here. I mean, we got regeneration, being a child of God. We got effectual calling, being a child of God. We, we have a lot of stuff connected with eschatology. We have justification. We have Christian life in which we live. There is a ton of stuff that is going on in here. But notice we see what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. When you consider our former ways, when you consider our remaining corruption, why in the world would God love us? Why in the world would God make us his children? It is all founded and based upon his infinite love. He is love itself. First John says this very clearly. This is the book where it says God is love. His love does not waver. His love does not increase or decrease. You and I might love something. It is a quality, but it is not our nature. God, it is his nature. He is love. And we see the manifestation of his love towards us in the work of Christ, in Christ dying and rising again, but also in taking dead sinners and taking what Christ has done and giving them the benefits of what Christ has done. Brethren, we don't deserve any of it. Notice what manner of love the Father has bestowed, has given to us. He has adopted us. He has made us his children that we can call upon him boldly. And he has given us an inheritance that is ineffable, indescribable. We really don't understand really what that shall look like. I'll talk about that a little bit more uh, under verses 2 and 3. But we see our privileged position, dear brethren. It is because of God. John says something similar. uh, John says something similar. And Jesus in John also says something as well. Uh, You always feel good when you're prepping and another Bible passage comes to mind and then you read the commentators and they all say the same thing. You feel like you're on the right track. But John 1 verses 12 and 13, as many as received him, so believed. So there's faith. Uh, Regeneration precedes faith, but faith in time and space, believing upon Christ is an evidence. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right adoption to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Believe in Christ, you will be a child of God. And notice how one becomes a child of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How is one a child of God? Were they longing for God? Were they knocking on heaven's door? Were they seeking God Almighty before? No. God is the one who takes one who is dead and makes them alive. God takes one who was once born unto death and makes them born unto life. God is the one who brings about that great salvation. And God is the one who bestows and gives And calls his people whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world to be children of God. Similar to what Jesus says in John 3. And Nicodemus is really struggling with this. He eventually gets it. But 
Jesus says and talks about how most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Most assuredly, I, and then Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? Does he go into his mother's womb a second time? Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. It is what God brings. It is how God makes and calls and brings about his children who are his in contrast with the children who are of the devil. That's going to be a tough one next week, isn't it? Children of God and children of the devil. What in the world does that mean? I'm giving you all precursors. I want you to come again and hear what we have to say next week, but we'll talk about that more next week. But for now, we are a child of God because of God's love and because of what he does for us in Christ Jesus and what he gives to us by faith. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And that should then give us confidence in prayer, right? As we cry out, Abba, Father, as Galatians 4 says and Romans 8 says, as we call upon him as our God, it should give us more boldness as we pray to the high King of heaven, who is our Father. And notice we have a privileged position in contrast with the world. He says, therefore, verse one still, therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. And perhaps there is an objection that John is anticipating or perhaps he's heard before. And the objection is, well, if you love God, the world's going to hate you. So what is what John is saying? He says, Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, verse two, now we are the children of God. Brethren, this world again is filled with devils. This world is passing away as we saw in chapter two, verses 15 through 17. Don't love the world, dear brethren, nor the things in the world. Don't sin with the world. Brethren, we have to live in the world. I'm sorry to say that, but Jesus uh, prays to the Father that he doesn't take us out of the world, but that he keeps us from the evil one. We're still going to have to deal with difficult things in this present evil age, are we not? And so we have to be careful. I'm not saying we go hog wild, but we have to be watchful. We don't sin with the world in which we live in. But this present world, this present evil age hates us. You know why it hates us? It's because it hated our Christ. It's because it hates God. This world is filled with so much darkness and hatred, but it is passing away. This world is going to be no more one day, right? This world is going to be gone, but those who do the will of the Father, they shall abide forever, as it says in chapter 2, verse 17. And so if the world hates us, if the world doesn't know us, big deal, We are the children of God. We are his, we belong to him, and we need to be faithful to our father until the end. Come what may, if that requires death, if that requires suffering, which this present evil age is full of so much suffering, so let it be. Whatever it is, beloved, we now are the children of God. And there's something far greater that awaits the children of God. And that's what he transitions to in verses two and three. We are the children of God. And notice the children of God are going to be like him. They're going to be like Christ. They're going to be pure as he is pure. They're going to be like him when he comes. 
notice, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. There's a lot of things about the new heavens and the new earth that we just don't know. We can't see a lot of things cosmically. What will it look like? I don't know what it's going to look like. Uh, You know, we're not supposed to know the day or the hour. There are a lot of things that we cannot comprehend, right? Even our bodies, our glorified bodies with that personal eschatology, what will it look like? What will it resemble? What shall it be? There's a lot of things we don't understand. But there are some things that we do understand, dear brethren. And that's what he goes on to say. There's things we don't know, but there's things that we do know. But we know that when he is revealed, again, his coming, his manifestation, his second coming, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. John is speaking again about that last and second coming. That's really how the Bible often talks, dear brother. And that's one reason I am a millennial. We always like to go to Revelation to get our eschatology. That's a very bad idea. Because the reason is Revelation's hard to understand sometimes, isn't it? Let's be honest. It's hard to understand all the time. But there are clearer passages in the rest of the New Testament that tell us. We see that here with 1 John. We look for Christ. Titus chapter 2, as he talks again about what the future coming of Christ means and his appearing looks like and what it means for our present age. He speaks in similar ways. He says, teaching us uh, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared in Christ, teaching us that we deny ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is what we are looking for, dear brethren. He has come once and he is going to come again. There's a lot of things we don't know about that coming, but we know some things. And the beautiful thing is we shall be like him. What I think he is talking about here is our resurrected bodies. What we shall look like when Christ comes again. Paul speaks in a similar way in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, talking about heavenly citizenship. He talks about how who will transform as we wait for the Savior again. Second coming, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things in himself. Our bodies shall be conformed to his body. As we see in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of the resurrection. Christ, as he's ascended into heaven, is that pledge for us in heaven that we shall be with God. We don't know a lot of things, dear brethren, but we know that to be true, that we shall be like him. We shall have the resurrected bodies just as Christ has that body, and we shall be with him forever. We shall see him as he is. Remember how John saw him? He saw him in his resurrected state, which we saw in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. We don't. We believe it. We read about it. We hear it, but we have not seen it. And we believe upon it by faith. But one day, that faith will give way to sight. And we shall see him, that is Christ. We shall see him as he is. When we are resurrected, we're not going to get angels' wings. We're not going to become angels. And we're not going to become gods, dear brethren. We're going to be, have glorified bodies like our Savior in his human nature. The Bible says, no one has seen God at any time. No one has seen God 
at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has seen him and he has declared him. Or in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. What this means, dear brethren, is we can never, ever comprehend God in his essence because we're not God. We need God to reveal himself to us and the ways in which we see God are the way in which we see God is in whom? It's in Jesus Christ. And that shall be forever. We shall see God in the Lord Jesus Christ, see him, Christ, as he is. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life, dear brethren. We shall see our Savior as he is, but we're never forever going to be able to comprehend the infinity of God. We're never going to be able to exhaust the eternality of God because we cannot be God but we shall see Christ as he is and we shall worship him and sing praises to his name world without end. And the sad reality is the secessionists, the antichrist, the ones who were seceding from the church here, heretics, they claim to see God, but only those who believe by faith here will see God when he, or will see Christ, God in Christ when he comes again. When I say see God, I mean in Christ Jesus. They shall see God in Christ Jesus. It'll be that beatific vision, that blessed vision of our God forever, world without end. Brethren, as we await, though, there's suffering still, right? But we long for that. And if I may say, people want the beatific vision, vision now, do they not? But it's not going to happen in this present evil age. We long for the age to come. The heretics wanted to see God. The Jews at Colossae wanted to see God. Many others in our modern day want to see God. But you must believe Christ. And then you shall see him on that day when he comes again. This world is filled with suffering. We have to have a theology of the cross in order to understand the theology of glory. Don't bring the theology of glory where it should not be. There's suffering, there's the cross, then there is the crown. Just like our Lord, who suffered, who went through the cross, and he received the crown. And brethren, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. And then verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. We're like him even now as we wait. We hope for this. We haven't received it in its fullness yet, but we long for this time. And as we long for him, as we hope for him, we are pure in him. We believed upon him by faith. We've been washed in his blood. We've been cleansed. He's talked about this already in 1 John 1. If you've believed upon him, if you walk in the light, have fellowship with one another, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 9 if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to wash us. He is the one who purifies us in him. Notice to hope what we look forward to. Notice how the first coming and the second coming all tie in together. It's just two sides of the same coin, isn't it? What he started, what he shall finished. Uh, finish. And we have this hope of his coming again. And as we await, he purifies us now 
just as he himself is pure. If we are in Christ, we have been washed and we are pure in his sight even now. And what does Jesus promise in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the only way, brethren, we are pure in heart is in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. According to God's infinite love, according to the accomplishment of the Son, and the application of the Holy Spirit. This is what we long for. We long to see Christ as he is. And brethren, as we await, we believe by faith. And we get glimpses and foretastes as we await, don't we? We get glimpses on the Lord's day. We get to gather with the saints and sing praises to God most high. We get glimpses when we have moments where we read God's word and he speaks to us. Glimpses and foretastes. But we long for that fullness to come in. And if I may bring us back to what we saw in verses 24 through 27, the word of God, the truth of God, what God does for us. When we consider the exegetical process, when we consider reading God's word, you know what the end is of reading God's word? To dwell with God and to live like him. And so I'm going to read a lengthy quote from Whitman and Jameson. And I think it's very helpful. It summarizes everything we've been talking about this week and last week. To behold the glory of the crucified Christ is to know now by faith what we will one day see in truth with unveiled face. The glory that embraces us, purifies us, and raises us further up and further into the radiant beauty of God. This is the end of Christian exegesis because it is the end of the Christian life. In the making this end known, God grants us a token of our future blessedness and glory and implants in us a confident longing to see him face to face. In the power of the spirit, we cultivate this knowledge and longing by enacting in our lives the pattern of the Lord's cruciform glory. We grow more glorious here and now by taking up our cross and following Christ so that our light shines before others to the glory of the Father. We read God's glorious self-testimony in order to behold a glory that makes us glorious. This is the way Christian read scripture because it is the way Christians live. Love the word, dear brethren, for in it we see by faith God. And if you don't read it as much as you should, come to church. Come and hear the word preached. Remember the Lord God said he loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Come, brethren, come hear the word, be under the word of God. And God is pleased to speak to us. God is pleased to work in us. God is pleased to remind us and teach us what we do now as we await and long for our heavenly home. Brethren, consider what verse one says. Behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And remember that promise. We don't know, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for the privilege it is to be called children of God. We ask and pray that we would walk in righteousness We ask and pray that we would know that we are pure as you are pure and righteous as Christ is righteous. We ask and pray that we would know and consider your love for us. And as we see your love for us in the work of our Savior, and as we know the work in our hearts by your Spirit, 
We ask and pray that we would be a people who loves your word. Please forgive us for our drifting when it comes to the scriptures, our drifting when it comes to preaching and being in the church of Christ. Yet we are thankful for the end of this world uh, and thank you for the end for which you've created us, that is to glorify you and enjoy you forever. So thank you for the things we can do now to do so. And we ask and pray that you would come quickly, that Christ would come again soon, for we do long to see him as he is. And we're thankful that as you tarry, it does bring bring the salvation of friends, of loved ones, and it does bring the salvation of your elect. So we ask and pray that today would be that great day of salvation, that you would show them their sin, show them the reality that Christ is coming again, and work in them by your spirit, that they might see Christ and believe upon him and find life everlasting in him. But thank you for the assurances that you give us. Thank you for the comforts that you give us. Thank you for the strength that you give us. And thank you for the promise that Christ is bringing in his kingdom and he shall bring it in. So we ask even now as we come and consider the supper, we ask and pray that you would help us stoop to our nature as you do so in it that we would uh, have this blessed means of grace as a sign until Christ comes again. And thank you that Christ shall come again and we shall eat with him uh, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So be with us now by your spirit. Give us strength, we pray in Jesus' name. 